welcome to Fallout Podcast episode 59, aka Happy Memories Leave a Bitter Taste. It's a futile fall showdown, all 525 songs going head to head and ultimate, never to be repeated, once in a lifetime, etc. etc. Split into four eras: 77 to 85, 86 to 93, 94 to 2001, and 2002 to 2017. We have Fortress slash Deer Park up against Look No, Gross Chapel versus Black Bank theme power one, the $500 bottle of wine versus Beetle Bones and some something stones, outro bracket reformation versus pacifying John. Lots of um, long titles there. Joined, as always, by Sir William Billy Rugby. His notes were paired with Woody and Floral Scents. Thanks. Yes, uh, appreciate you noticing. How are you? I'm all right, mate. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm growing my, my winter haircuts. So I feel like a goddamn hippie today. Looking very look fine. Like yeah, aye. And at Lord Sage Temple, lean manufacturing can be best remembered through the acronym TIMWOOD. Totally improper murder with oblongs of doom ordered <laughs> beautiful uh, yeah. Pemberton Walker increasing the amount of meaning in our lives doesn't have to involve any radical outward move well you know if you can stay indoors you might as well Tiny Tim Twire <laughs> official holidays and weekends do not count as business days is he with us? He's sick of reminding you, Matt. Aye. And I am tree three beards, a perennial plant with an elongated stem. Now, before we get into it, potentially our most controversial futures and past, Philip, who are we talking Hello. about tonight? Well, it's it's been a bit of a long time coming, hasn't it? But we've threatened to do this a few times. So today we're grasping the nettle and we're gonna we're gonna try and tackle Wyndham Lewis in futures and past. I'll be I'll be honest right off the cuff. I'm I've not read that much Wyndham Lewis. With you. So I'm kind of going a bit, a little bit off second-hand information, but we have a few snippets to kind of intersperse with things. So the only one that I have actually given much time to is Blast. But before that, I'll give you a little bit of a pricey about who Wyndham Lewis was. He's probably most famous for being a painter um, and was famous for being one of the founders of the Vorticist movement. He was not going to, he was born in 1882 on his father's yacht, apparently. Uh, his biography starts off with. So I, I think he was with Means, it's first to say. I think his mum was British and his dad was American, so he's kind of one of those uh, in, in between kind of folk. But I, I think you've got um, a little clip we can play later on where you can hear the man speak himself. And he's uh, he's got quite the clipped accent, hasn't he? It's very, mm. uh, very British. The word, I think, the attraction for Marquis Smith comes from the character like Wyndham Lewis is, um, is something that you don't really have to scratch around much for it's the fact that he is he likes to target everybody in his sights doesn't he he's got something he's got an opinion about everything and he doesn't really fall neatly between sort of left and right wing and his politics either so he manages to upset everybody in the uh, in the crowd and um, i listened to quite an interesting podcast about him one of the uh, the penguin uh literary characters kind of podcast started off describing him um not in the uncharitable way that uh, uh hemingway did but uh by saying that he was the kind of the person that would be stood in the corner of a party sneering at everybody. And I thought, well, that sounds like a perfect description of Marquis Smith, doesn't it? Sorry. This is how Hemingway did describe him. <laughs> 
It's, well, Hemingway described him as a man with the eyes of an unsuccessful rapist. Apparently, yes. He's <laughs> possibly the worst burn I've ever heard anybody get. I mean, that's like, you know, that's top draw. burns, that, isn't it? It's a cruel line. However, you can kind of see where Hemingway's coming from if you see any <laughs> photographs of him. Um, Not known for holding back, was he, Ernest? He got his first breaks, really, through his friendship with Ezra Pound as well. So, yet again, another sort of dubious political. Uh, political aficionado there. Uh, and again, somebody who you can see why uh, Smith would like such a complicated person who is perhaps veering towards the transgressive and his fringy associates. He wrote and edited this document called Blast, um, which came out about sort of uh, the start of the First World War and was, was like a bit of a manifesto for the Vorticist movement, which he was heavily involved in. Vorticism kind of came out the uh, certainly modern but more like the futurist movements that were knocking around Italy at the time so it was about dynamism and industrialism and, and how those kind of things should affect art. Very popular modernist themes about how machinery and technology kind of interface with uh, everyday life. What that meant for the worker but not we're not taking a strictly socialist view on it and, and likewise not taking a strictly fascist view on it which were the, the games in town when he was writing those things. So I'll give you a little snippet of Blast. Dredger monotonous cranes, stations, lighthouses, blazing through the frosty starlight, cutting the storm like a cake, beaks of infant boats, side by side, heavy chaos of wharves, steep walls of factories, womanly town, bless these machines that work the little boats across the clean liquid space in beelines, bless the great ports, Hull, Liverpool, London, Newcastle on Tyne, Bristol, Glasgow, bless England, industrial island machine, pyramidal workshop, its apex at Shetland, discharging itself on the sea, bless, cold, magnanimous, delicate, gauche, fanciful, stupid Englishman. Two, bless the hairdresser. He attacks Mother Nature for a small fee. Hourly, he ploughs heads for sixpence, scours chins and lips for threepence. He makes systematic mercenary war on this wildness. He trims aimless and retrograde growths into clean arched shapes and angular plots. So it's not without its humour and hopefully you can get from that. He's, He's got quite a staccato way of writing in Blast which is the the first thing I came across because it was referenced in an article about Smithy's lyric writing and when you actually see it written down on page it looks remarkably like four lyrics in his his meter and the way he chooses things but that's it's this is not his normal prose style because he did he published several books over the the course of his life the first one was called Tar which came out in 1918 but I got more interested in this trilogy that he wrote, The Human Age. The first book of which came in in 2018 is called The Childermas, which I think is one of those ideas that Smithy's lifted with his like uh, middlemass kind of ideas. It, this was like a religious science fiction fantasy novel. It's set in the wastelands between here and Heaven's Gate and follows the stories of people who are waiting to be judged at the end of time. And it really just gives him a platform to kind of aim his target at whoever it is that he wants to have a pop at and makes for very, very interesting prose. Uh, oh, I was going to play that Murky Smith talking about Wyndham Lewis clip that I sent around yesterday. It's a dislike of intense life. He's got all these, like, society movies, like, this self-portrait of his life. I like all that blast shit, you know, with the writers, which has obviously, I think, influenced me a bit on that. 
that hex induction, you know, blast France, blast London, you know, stick up your arse sort of thing. Anybody who calls the book Rotting Hill, have you ever heard that one? It's great. So yeah, he's a big fan of uh, of the Lewis. It, it's one of those things that's followed him all the way through his career. Because I, when I was researching this bit, I found in 2017 he did something with the Imperial War Museum where he was responding to Wyndham Lewis with the uh, clips of the war footage being played over tops. So yeah, I just thought it was worth sticking a bit of a mark in the sand really about Wyndham Lewis because he's such an influential person on Smithy himself and the style that the fall developed. I don't know if that um, thing with the War Museum went ahead because he wasn't well. I think I remember reading that it didn't happen, but I'd be interested if it did. Uh, any 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 video of it or whatever. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with him. When I was at uni in Sheffield, I did come across a copy of Blast in the university library, which I took out, and for me, it was really good. Um, and it kind of puzzled me that he's really not someone. He's not an artist whose praises are sung in the UK, whereas you know he seems to have. Had, you know, even if you're excluding Marky e. Smith, he seems to have had a pretty sizable influence. And the whole layout of this blast book, even more so than the words, is incredible. You know, like you've got all kinds of different fonts and different sizes of type, and the letters are just spilling all over the page. And what they're saying is really interesting. And it, you know, it, it's got great impact. From that time, I would struggle to think of anyone else who doing that kind of stuff with the written word. So, yeah, you know, I, I took that book out of the library and I enjoyed it and I took it back and that was the last I heard of Wyndham Lewis probably <laughs> until today, you know. Um, and to me, that's strange. I mean, I know that he was, he had some pretty fruity opinions, but many had and do, uh, and I'm not sure why that would lead to him being kind of whitewashed out of, you know, the history of British culture. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's all I really know of him and you know other than that it, you can really see quite clearly the influence that he had on Smith and the ball you know it, it's pretty you know it's pretty plain but yeah interesting stuff I mentioned before when we talk about writers that, that Smith is you know you could lump him with this modernist idea of kind of abstracting the world and trying to, to condense it down to get the truth out of it but I think this is the clearest precedence of his kind of stuff if you go back just like you said fairly leaps out that this yeah. particular one I don't know again if his prose in, in his more regular style does I've heard a little bit here and there and it didn't seem to have anything really of this kind of cut up uh, no, kind of angular it technique it's, it's much more um, I won't say purple because that feels like a pejorative kind of description of it but it's certainly of its time It's it, it, it feels a little bit more uh, flowery than, than you would normally expect for that kind of, even for modernist writers yeah but beyond the beyond the, the kind of layout the angular note the actual fact that it is a manifesto and it's talking about art as a living thing art as a, a ongoing revolution and art as not looking back yeah I, I clipped some of images from blast because 
you know, some of the things imagine Smith reading it and being like, yeah, yeah, this is it. It's like we start from opposite statements of a chosen world. We set up violent structures of adolescent clearness between two extremes and we discharge ourselves on both sides. Beyond action and reaction, we establish ourselves. It's just kind of like get out there and do. I mean, so it's the punk manifesto, but it's, it's an arty punk manifesto, isn't it? It is. It's, there's a bit in that, yeah, there's a bit in that same interview that I've read the, the clip of where he's talking about the difference between artiness artfulness and art yeah and the fact exactly. they're not the same things and that you can be very serious about art and hate artiness well here's the last bit before we move on because before you play your last clip because he's talked about the north a lot in that in the blast and i'm not sure i'm assuming he does mean the literal north of england given that he talks about liverpool and sheffield and all these kind of uh, industrial places but he's he talks about how um tragic humor is the birthright of the north any great north Northern art will partake of this insidious and volcanic chaos. The North will rise again. <laughs> Don't know a great deal about Wyndham Lewis. I know his name. Of, yeah, I mean, quite like his art from what I saw of it. So, you know, it is quite freaky in a, in a grotesque way. The lyric about the, the barbers, uh, I, I picked up on that. A very kind of observational, very smithy. You know, you can see that I, he's, he's definitely taking an influence from Wyndham Lewis. You know, I, might, I might venture down the... Uh, Wyndham Lewis, uh, if I see it, in a charity shop. <laughs> All right, well, if you got a last one for us, Phil? Well, you, you showed him talking about art a little bit, so let's just play a little clip of that so you can hear the man himself. In childhood, the average individual is much more inclined to visual expression than at any subsequent period of his life. Most of us are artists at eight years old. In the uh, great majority of cases, our artistic career ends at the age of 11 or 12. Uh, why is this? Is it uh, because visual expression is an essentially childish activity, as some philosophers have asserted? Uh, as children, our imagination, our imaginative life flows over readily into imagery assisted probably by the gift of a box of watercolours. It is a natural outlet for our passion for storytelling. In child drawings, the child is narrating events and making up tales, usually about himself. I'll be honest with you, he's got a different voice than what I expected. <laughs> it hardly seems like the scourge, the scourge, the scourge of, of the land, does he? Uh, a, a plummy Englishman born on a yacht. Exactly. Yes, a very interesting character and hot topic. Yeah, you're right. What's up first tonight, Phil? First up, Fortress slash Deer Park. Give us a blast of that, if you will. It's a good job I'm editing this, isn't it? Hold on to your horses. Today, here on the Vitamin B Glandular Show.
Carrying on many of the themes that William Lewis started. <laughs> Phil, what do you make of Fortress slash Deer Park? They're good, isn't it? <laughs> They're good. <laughs> I, yeah, it's a fantastic tune. I love how it starts. I think the intro is absolute classic. I think uh, the, the strummy chime chords that come in after that weird sort of um, skitty blip at the start and the barks of, of Mez that's, yeah, they do echo that blast stuff. Very busy drums, which took me a little bit by surprise, especially for this period on X-Induction Hour. And then we go into that sort of two-chord vamp that they do so well. You know, it's it's the, the fall at their best, doing what they do best. Um, and then, yeah, and then it slips pretty seamlessly into Deer Park, which is actually very different sonically as a tune. You've got the very noisy riff, that insistent bass that kind of drives everything along uh very straight drums that play all the way through it and then you've just got that keyboard scream of a drone that just just works perfectly it's just absolutely beautiful and it makes me go absolutely bonkers whenever i listen to it i think it's a fantastic piece of music towards the end just when you think they've thrown everything in the kitchen sink at you you get like a surf guitar bit that starts coming in over the top of it that which is like completely took me by surprise on re-listenings. Yeah, and even Mez giving it a bit of rock and roll at the end of it all, isn't he? He's giving it a bit of the old sort of vocal stutters and stuff towards the end. And yeah, this is a magnificent slab of perfect form for me. Sweet, sweet. Ezra, what about this for you? One of your favourites, right? Oh, absolutely. Possibly the favourite. I mean, you know, as, as I've said before, it was the first album I listened to by the fall was Hex Induction Hour. And the first track on that album that really grabbed me by the gonads and convinced me that I had to pay more attention to this band was this song. In my mind, one of the original sins of this podcast has been separating the two parts of Winter from the same album and calling them different songs. And the interesting thing here is now with Fortress Deer Park, we do actually have two different songs. They're treated as separate by the band. And if you listen to any of live shows they did when they were playing those songs, they are not played together. However, I have to go with the podcast Brendo Rhythm on this occasion because I really feel like these two songs are like Marmite and Butter together. You can't have the intensity of Deer Park without the launch pad of Fortress. And the way it just careens into that, it's beyond smasher. And as Phil was saying, you know, for me, that keyboard, that's my favorite keyboard solo of all time ever. And it's just two notes, but it's just... And it, it's just, it's a thing of mesmerizing beauty. The whole thing. I spent many, many years wondering what on earth it was that he was going on about in this song and most of the other songs, to be fair. But this being a favourite, I was like, what, what on earth is it? But again, it, it's such a fascinating thing with the fall that all you need is the cadence, the rhythm and a few words that you can 
scrapple from the maelstrom and you pretty much know it you know you know it i mean it seems like um fortress is more or less about him going to bbc to talk socialism with the kids for some tv show i hope there's a clip of that somewhere i haven't looked for it yet and deer park what books do you i don't know some kind of state of the nation address or something but you know i'm just gonna just gonna list some of the lyrics from my memory like it's wonderful how he you know just encapsulates so much of a moment in these few lyrics and especially the few lyrics that you can hear you know i had to wade through 500 euro punks i put some change on the asian counter and a hospital discharge asked me where he could crash it's so evocative and with such economy and again as uh, as Phil was saying it just goes up and up and up this song and then you have this like incendiary guitar solo some of the best guitar soloing I've heard this side of the Stooges and I do believe that could have correct me if I'm wrong but if I'm understanding correctly I think that was Smith himself twatting away on the uh, on the axe it's a fantastic noise solo whoever did it um, and a song for the ages yeah Great. I, I don't know if it's Smith. I know there's rumors that he was involved in a few tracks on that album, kicking things in the corner, but uh, it is beautiful. Picking the guitarist. Yes. Here is the deal, Ezra. When we get to, to uh, round two, we can discuss if we'd like to separate these two tracks, should they make or keep them together. Because you're right, they um, there's a bunch of live versions where Fortress goes on a lot longer and sometimes segues into other other tunes. But let's have a think. Let's have a, let's have a good old think about that. But first, what does Alistair Aspinall think? Um, I think the vitamin B glandular sure sounds like it would be far more interesting than listening to us talking bollocks today. It's uh, a great tune in it, you know, it's one that I've been familiar with many, many years. That's uh, me again on repeat like a broken record. That's Uh, that's going in the bingo now, Al. A song that Al has been familiar with for many, many years, (laughs) along with Top top in the Red and The Cramps. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like The Cramps. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's a great one. You know, you've got Fortress, which is like a decent tune on its own, and then Deer Park. It's all been said before, like, but you've got that beautiful, noisy guitar with a sort of really nasty Sister Ray type velvets keyboards over the top. Can't remember. Reminds me of the monks in, in some respects. The bass is absolutely fantastic on it. I think it's a, again, it's the bass that's that's leading it. You can chuck that one in the bingo as well. Like, the bass is brilliant, <laughs> but yeah, it's the two drummer setup, so it's quite an energetic song. So, but I'll leave it at that. I think everything's right. been said. Oh, indeed, I got Sister Ray from it, especially those last three or four minutes. Has listed some of the the longer versions of Sister Ray over the last few weeks, and yeah. It's definitely right four minutes in, like you were saying, Phil, when that surf guitar, that wonky guitar comes in, like really loud. It's really nice. And that from that point on, it's all gold. Uh, I mean, before it's brilliant, but that last few minutes really, really hits home. Putting the two drummers to good use. And uh, yeah, I, I'm with you as with the fact that these were put together. I think it was a fine decision. I think it, 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 um, it, was, it was smart. I, I really love the clangy kind of guitar on the breakdown, especially um, as it, it keeps kind of like undulating down and then building back up again. Two hours with four left-wing kids. I spent night time in Nazi Fortress. Much discussion in CH1. Oh, CH11. Much discussion in boiled beef and carrots. And good King Harry was the fucking Jimmy Savile. 
Oh, that's what he says. That's the really quiet line that you have to listen really carefully for. So yeah, apparently it is. This was this song was annotated for gold. So thank you again to to those chaps because it's um just so much great stuff, especially about that about the fortress park where he is essentially the Nazi fortress is the BBC, and then and then Deer Park, yeah, where C. Wilson wrote Ritual in the Dark. Pip, this is your your kind of area. Have you read the Ritual in the Dark? Uh, no, but I've I've only read a handful of Colin Wilson things, to be honest with you. Don't, hasn't he made Colin Wilson references in the past with some of his stuff? I think uh, so. I don't know if there's more explicit ones, but this is uh, right right up. Was there. Ritual in the Dark the one of his first novels? Was it? I don't, know, don't know anything about it. Ezra, you uh, a Colin Wilson fan? You know much about his Sadly stuff? Not. He's been recommended to me many times as someone who I'd be really into. Uh, I always heard it as, this is a signal for a ritual in the dark. Have you been to the English deer park? Which I think I prefer. No it's disrespect actually, yeah. to Colin or anything. It's a large type artist ranch. Uh, what does Tim think? So you just remind me actually about uh, when I used to go feeding deers at somebody's big house near uh, Newbrewer, I think it is. And they make all the money on toilet rolls. That's it, that's <laughs> <laughs> it's from my childhood. It's a tangent. Yeah. Okay, what to say? An undeniable classic that wonderful Razorblade Hex production scuffed tape noise and that magical moment when Deer Park starts and the wonderfully moronic two-chord keyboard kicks in. Just great. Ooh, la, la. Well, it is up against Look No, a Shed 7 cover from 1982. Um, let's, let's have a listen, shall we? <laughs> Look now, so this was the first single, I think, or a single they put out after Hex, but before Room to Live. Ezra, what do you make of Look No? Well, this was uh, a pleasant surprise for me because I've not heard it before. Uh, when the intro home came in, which is literally identical to Fortress and Deer Park, I was a little bit caught on the back hoof by that. Like, what, what on earth? And why would you? Because it is literally, 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 literally the same thing. They just took the tape and copied it. So why, why on earth they would do that? I like I. Filling decisions oh. number 123 by the fall. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's an ace tune. And the things that make it really ace for me would be the bass riff, which is just as naughty and gnarly as you would hope, and the incandescent keyboards, which just sound like crickets chirruping, you know, out in the night or something. It, it, it's just chiming and beautiful. Um, the song in and of itself, it wasn't that interesting for me lyrically. Uh, I just looked at the lyrics now to see if there was anything that 
that I would want to recite. And apart from some fairly, you know, disappointing references to faggots wearing clothes, there's not that much that excites me lyrically about this song from a period when the Falls lyrics were arguably the strongest they would ever be. So, yeah, but, you know, still good song, apart from the uh, of-its-time homophobia. Aye, it, not good enough to be on Hex. So we'll put it out as a single, shall we? Um, Baffling decision number 117. Exactly. Alistair, what do you reckon? I'll try to it if I can. It's a scary old world out there, isn't it? It, You know, the lyrics sounds kind of snobby and judgmental, but then they kind of turn the scenario around at the end a little bit, like, you know, um, not dug into the lyrics too much. So Ezra spotted something in there that I hadn't. Uh, but yeah, it's great bass riff that nails the song down. You know, the guitar and keys dropping in, and I, I do like what the keys are doing. Uh, as was already mentioned, that a uh, very nice song. I quite like it. I quite like the, the sort of uh, the space in it. Um, very kind of minimal. Uh, but yeah, it's it's um, a very spacious song. Indeed, it makes the room look bigger. It does. Uh, nice yeah, hand claps. I disparage it with faint praise by saying that the hand claps are the best thing about it. It does remind me of Shed 7. That It's that Riley cheeky chappy vocal and I got a lot of time for Riley but this is not his high point. Yeah, bass is probably... Hanley's the only person in that room I think who's doing anything <coughs> that I think is uh, of note. It is so cheesy. And as much as I love cheese, there's certain kinds of cheese that I can't get on board with. And it's the cheese that sounds like Rick Witter. Apparently, <laughs> Mez, for whatever reason, possibly rather maybe he, he thought it was too bad, but usually that hasn't stopped him in the past, mostly probably because it would have meant that Riley got some money. He refused to put it on the 2005 reissue of Hex. And uh, Mark Riley has said that he tried to base some of his guitar on the um, Candy Skin record by the Fire Engines, a really top, uh, top-notch top post-punk Scottish outfit that you may have come across in the past. Great band. But yes, I'm calling it right now. Tim, what do you think? Tim to Tim, Tim, Tim has said, Rare Riley vocals prominently featured. No wonder it soon disappeared from the catalogue with his imminent departure. If I remember correctly, I think Mez even ensured it wasn't put on the Castle Hex reissue. Correct. For me, it's classic. Has more room to breathe than the above. And so more room for those beautiful little touches that elevate it considerably. Bass riff is to die for. And the vocal production for Mez's bits is slightly distant and atmospheric. I love the falling apart switch to the bridge section and then the plinky Plonky improvised decoration. How the fuck could any band turn out Hex and Room to Live in one year and also find time to do a single like this with a stunning B-side as well? Oh, well, you never know what he's going to think, do you? And I think our critical cycles are aligning as we're uh, saying the same things. But they're good things and they're the right things. But we now need to take that all-important vote. Because you're not interested in what I think. What does Phil think? (laughs) I think Look No is catchy as hell. I think it's a it's a really good pop song. They've I appreciate the fact that Riley was about to get kicked out, but I think here you could really hear the reason. And this is this is good and bad as to why he would get kicked out. Because he's quite obviously trying to live out some kind of Beatle fantasy, isn't he, with the whole McCartney Lennon thing going on. He's got a little chirpy, you gotta know what you look like, like Paul McCartney to Lennon's sneering kind of comments about it all over the top. 
up. So it, it was it was probably quite predictable that it would all fall apart. The other thing that I was thinking whilst I was listening to this is I can imagine a very young Steve Maltmus listening to this record. And especially those chord, the chord break at the middle eight sounds very, very pavementy to me. And it's there's lots of touches in this tune where you're thinking, yes, young Steve Maltmus is making lots of notes at this point as he's listening to this record. I really like this. I've been singing it all week. Very nice indeed. Maybe this is going to be closer than I think. It's not. Let's take a vote. Ezra, which way are you going? Obviously, it's going to be Fortress Deer Park. Indeed. Alistair? Fortress Deer Park. I, me, Fortress Deer Park. Tim? Look, no. No, no, not true. He scored scored it. Fortress Deer Park (laughs) 2.99 and Look, no, (laughs) 3. He's, he's janking our chains at this point. Timothy! They clean your balls there, mate. And what about you, Phil? Well, yeah, I think it's close. I think it is Fortress Day Park, but uh, I don't think it's as much of a drumming as you're making it. A done deal. There was a a, um, a picture that they were put that someone posted on the annotated fold that actually listed all of the songs. An early one actually, because I think "Look No" was actually around in some form as early as seventy seven. As as all new kind of bands do, they've got like a list of fifty songs, but most of them are like just a title. But he's got a lot in here as early as seventy seven. He's got "Psycho Mafia," "Repetition," and "Oh Brother." And uh, they talk about covering Sweet Jane and Wild Thing and then Unrecorded and uh, Spectre versus Rector and a few things down there as early as this is 77. So we know he goes back and um, digs in. um, Some of these were popping up for decades. I can hear the grass grows on that list, which they didn't do until 2004 or something. Anyhow, moving on, Gross Chapel slash British Grenadiers. Off Ben Sinister, that most mysterious of fall albums from 1986. Let's have a listen. Yes, Alistair, what about uh, Gros Chapelle slash British Grenadiers for you? Again, reminded me of the monks. I can't really know why, but uh, there's a feel of a monksy groove to it. Don't mind the shitty recordings uh, from Ben Sinister, quite like the LP, really. It's like kind of mid-80s fall. Do you like the timings on it? It seems completely out at times, um, like they're pissing around with tapes and tape timings and things like that. But there's some really nice grooves going on with the bass, drums, guitar. Again, kind of jammed out, so in a bit of soundtrack maybe and yeah I did notice that you know the line uh, I'll put you down you know Smith did like cats dinner I'm just wondering if Tiddles had pissed him off fair enough but it was on all of our minds I thought of nothing else I thought the guitar particularly reminded me of the Smiths. There was a, I, I, there's not many fall songs that remind me of Johnny Marr, but uh, but this one and and actually the way the bass and the guitar work together, especially the turnaround at the end of the riff, it was very like early Smiths kind of stuff. 
I'm a bit torn between whether that works, but um, yeah, the more I listen to this, the more I get into it. Like I say, I say with Ben Sinister, I've listened to it so many times and it never seems to stay in my head. And songs like Riddler and, and Gross Chapel and Bournemouth Runner, probably listened to it a hundred times and I, I can never remember what any of them sound like. As soon as they kick off, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. This is, I mean, this is awesome. It just... It just keeps rising and falling and there's little things coming in all the way through the kind of soft toms are coming in and the odd little bit of keyboards, which probably at that point, I'm guessing uh, Panpipe Simon Rogers was was around. We were talking about modernism earlier, but the Wasteland, this reminded me very much. Obviously, it's got its talking potentially about the Grail myth and talking about this kind of war era pastiche or um, collage. The bit he sings in the middle or the spoken word bit, I think the British Grenadiers part Unlike Fortress Deer Part, which is two distinct songs, I think Grenadiers is just the segment in the middle where he repeats essentially some lines from a Grenadiers chant or poem or something. There's a hell of a lot to dig into with this song in terms of lyrics. I'm not, I'm going <laughs> to hope that it gets through because there's so much more to dig in. Porters down the, dr- the dark gross chapel, he stepped streets around now, salesperson mobile, was introduced by a woman loose limbed slim one woke up to a whitewashed ugly wall whoosh made worse by dirty postcards trapped in their town they're embracing criminals in panicky hall yeah absolutely fantastic song philip what do you reckon well first of all i think you put your finger on something which i've started calling the curse of ben sinister where there's all these songs on that album that i really like and every time they come on i find myself nodding and tapping my toes and stuff but as soon as it finishes i can't remember what the fuck it was uh and this is another one of them songs for me really I think it sets up great it's got that nice Joy Division urban ominous kind of vibe to it all and everything comes in and it's all quite satisfying the riffs are really good and it's I don't mind the production on Ben Sinister I think it's I think it sounds good as an album it's all work I think the bass carries everything it's very busy I, I would say it does most of the heavy lifting really in the tune and you've got again it's another one of these tunes with a little light bit of keyboard just drops in and it just adds the very necessary kind of contrast for everything to sound great but I must admit with this tune I get to about two and a half minutes in with it and I'm thinking what else are you going to do now what else are you going to do it needs it needs to do something else at that point it's all it's all very nice and it feels a little bit like when you draw a picture but you're afraid of colouring it in or shading it because you might ruin it and to me it just needs that extra dollop of something to kind of get it on and, and because of that I think it kind of it just drifts on a bit too aimlessly this song it's quite long isn't it like six and a half minutes or something in the whole track and it's I don't think it's quite got enough to carry it over a line of six minutes I think it's a little bit too timid in its approach a bit too nice in the way that everything's come together they found it, it strikes me as one of those songs where everything's come together very accidentally but well and then you don't really know what to do with it after that and you've not really got enough to make a full song out of it so it's very nice it's good but it's too long and it needs something else with it and it does unfortunately fall under the curse of Ben Sinister where as soon as it finishes I can't remember where it goes get the back pipe player in 
<laughs> pump pipes. Yeah, pump pipes. What does Timothy think? Let's have a look, eh? Let's see what Aye. his thoughts are. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is the Gross Chapel thing. I wondered if that was a Robert Anson Wilson link to the Chapel Perilous. I didn't that that was suggested on the annotated fall, yeah. and obviously that the Chapel Perilous idea has links to the Grail. Uh, yeah, it does as well, yeah. right? So that's the, there's something in there again. Yeah, was, that, yeah. yeah. Okay, so Timothy uh, Timothy Trois has put the absolute high point of Ben Sinister for me in a career highlight too. The murky and filthy sound, steady but insistent pace of the drums, that snarling bass language from the two note snarl to the walking figure, the perfectly judged guitar works that fills the space when needed and creates some great rhythmical interest. It's like one of those massive fuck off paintings of a grotesque country country manor scene that's just been left to get all mucky and blackened over the centuries when a guitar properly kicks in it's all around the four and a half minute mark it's like a cathartic rush Ooh, Ezra I'm coming your way as uh, what do you reckon to uh, this song whatever it's called it's, it's very interesting what's been said about Ben Sinister tonight because I, I can only I mean, with the exception of shoulder pads, which has completely lodged itself within my conscience. And within all our hearts. Uh, and US yeah. 80s, 90s is on there as well, which is, but the rest, yeah, no idea. Yeah, yeah, US 80s, 90s is also pretty memorable um, for reasons. But yeah, and so, you know, coming back to this song, I was like, oh yeah, this song, it's off Ben Sinister, isn't it? And it completely <laughs> blew me away. It, it, yeah, I, I think, you know, I would go along with Timothy. I would say it's a career high. Like, I think it's fantastically good. It's epically mysterious in the best possible way because they've got no bells, whistles, or bagpipes to, you know, flaunt the mystery. It's just very much the band. Potentially, I mean, one thing I picked up on on the uh, annotated fall is the idea that um, maybe uh, Scanlan gets a bit lost and so the band start wrong-footing themselves in the middle section. And if you listen to the Peel Session version, it's actually a lot more straightforward. And Phil's criticisms of the song are criticisms that I would actually level at the Peel Sessions version. The album version, where it gets a bit murky and you're not sure who's going why, where, you know... It's like soldiers in the mist in Culloden or wherever they are. It, it's great. It's such an atmospheric song. It, it's got a low-key but suitably haunting Smith delivery. He's redshifting it to buggery, excellent stuff. Indeed. And I would level those same accusations at Philip himself. <laughs> what about... You'd all, uh, all be quite right. Alistair, you've already told us what you think. It's a bit monksish, right? A little bit monksish. Now, this next one, ironically, no, not monksish at all. Black no. Monk theme number one. Let's have a listen.
Okay, one of the four, I believe, monks covers that the fall did during their time. This is a I Hate You, which they call Blank Blank theme part one. I um pretty standard, competent cover of a fantastic tune. I think they sucked most of their life at the original, unfortunately. Though Brahma, I'm guessing it's Brahma. <laughs> He's just doing quite interesting shit all over it that has nothing to do with the original, but he's quite interesting in the background. Um, and there's a kind of interesting string sound, which again, I guess is Brammer. I thought it was Kenny Brady sneaking into the studio early, but I don't think he's around yet. So yeah, I think if a fairly perfunctory cover that is made interesting by Brammer doing whatever the fuck he likes all over the top of it. What about you, Phil? What do you reckon? Yeah, I, I think you'd be a uh, mistake for thinking this is just the actual monk's tune if it wasn't for some for things like that violin which is added over the top of it, it it sounds pretty standard doesn't it again smithy doesn't do it doesn't do much really that isn't in the original record there's a few little phrases in there thrown in yeah and i'm i was a big fan of the maladaptive monkey line but everything else seems seems just a bit too safe a bit too karaoke really um mez is, is very well behaved, which is a is a bit disappointing, really, with with something like this, because the, the the best monks cover they've done so far that we've covered has been the one where he's just going for it, yeah. isn't Pickledy, it? Pickledy, right? Yeah, yeah, and the timing's everywhere, isn't it? And it's just it's all the more glorious because of it, really. But that all being said, after having listened to it several times and having wrote my notes about it and been very critical about it all, it's a great song by a band that I love. Do you know what I mean? Do it, do a cover of about um so I, I i still enjoyed listening to it there's nothing in it that grates against me it's uh it's a nice way to pass some time really it is alistair what do you reckon yeah uh, <laughs> it's i think it sits really well on on extrica and if you listen to the lp as a whole uh, the song's not at place at all you know and it does seem like a monk song but it can't be can it because it's got a different title and the uh, monks never used the, the phrase bugalugs uh, to my knowledge so uh, <laughs> i'd say this is a standalone track in there uh, you know, just to sort of put a bit of controversy in there. Maybe it's not a cover. Maybe it'll vote it through. But uh, yeah, we, we did this one, Phil and myself, and we did that Songs at the Fall covered set uh, with the guy from The Human Centipede, Lawrence Harvey, yeah. But um, again, criticism of Extricate always comes out with the drum sound for me. I mean, like, what the bloody hell's going on with that? Like, that snare's awful. But I love the violin. That's great. So all in all, it's not bad. Aye, aye. I want to have a bit of a listen to the original because I was around to the idea that it wasn't a bad cover. I now see where my mistake was, Alice. It's not a cover at all. It's just a poor song. Um, (laughs) But it was, um, but then when I did listen and re listen to the original, it's like, all right, my socks were once again blown off. And and I went back and listened to the falls with, with a heavy heart, as we do sometimes with these covers. But let's have a bit of a listen.
So yeah, I mean, once the vocals come in on there, you're like, yeah, Smith, he was uh, unfortunately falling in it a little bit, maybe. Uh, but to record a song called I Hate You, called Just As Your Wife's Left You, maybe it's a bit on the nose as well. <laughs> uh, so what do you make to this delightful cover? Well, it's funny, you know, um, the first time I heard this song was, I didn't know what the title of it was. And despite knowing the monks quite well at that point, I didn't actually realize that it was a cover. I was like, wait a minute, I heard this on a fall album. And yeah, you know, I mean, I'm fond of it for reasons previously stated by others. The violin is fantastic. Mark's treatment of the vocals, whilst they're, you know, arguably not as good as the original Monks one, I feel like they do a, you know, a decent, honest cover version, if that sounds like damning with faint praise. Perhaps that's what I'm doing. But it's a good song by a great band or a great song by the original great band. Either way, I like it. Very good. What about Timmy Tim 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 Twin? What does he think? Oh, Tim. I like the whirlwind of violin throughout this. Sounds queasy and demented and really elevates the rest, which is mostly just a bored sounding plod. I wish the rest of the instruments would have had a bit more to do, some variation in phrasing, a bit of proportion. But nah, it's just dum de dum de dum all the way through. This is something I would like to have heard the later day band have a crack at, if only because of Mark's increased level of experimentation with his voice as a sound source. I'm sure in the last 10 years of his recording, he could have made a great deal more of the phrasing lyrics of the original. Indeed. But it is not to be. So let us take a vote. What does he think? Is he going to Rush Chapel or the monks? <laughs> Gross Chapelle Five Lights, and he's given Black Monk theme two themes. Very good. I am also going for Gross Chapelle. Uh, Alistair? Well, I think the uh, Black Monk theme really missed out on uh, the banjo on it, um, so it's going to have to be uh, Gross Chapelle. Okay. Ezra? Gross Chapelle. May we, may we, Philip Rigby? Yeah, I'm going to have to go for Gross Chapel, really. They, they don't do enough on the Monk's tune. Though. Exactly. You couldn't even throw in a shit housing VOD for that Monk's tune. You couldn't even bring yourself to do Wrong that. Wrong That's what we're waiting for, isn't ah, it? Well, you know, it's not yet. Up next is a $500 bottle of wine off uh, Middle Class Revolt 1994. Let's hear it. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to suggest as well that for our Christmas show, we should have a sad game of Rate My Tonsure. We've, uh, we, we put that photograph up of the monks and do a detailed description of each one of their uh, various photos. Okay, I'm up for that. People red time wrong situation. That could be so good for you. 
Well, 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 Philip, what do you make of a five hundred dollar bottle of wine? Society. Oi! <laughs> I like it. This is a great recall back to when he uh, he did his own sitcoms, wasn't it? When he started in his own sitcoms, sang the theme tunes, wrote the theme tunes. Let's get everybody in the studio. We can all sing along to this one. Yeah, that's as much as I'm going to say about it. It's get drunk and sing along. It's what's what's the not to like. He makes bad syntax choices with his chorus, but it still works. It's a great hook. The thing that takes me the most by surprise with this tune is the in excess guitar. That's the thing that I did not expect with this tune. And the more I broke it down, the more fascinated I became with how they'd managed to get in excess in to do uh, the guitar work on it, really. But uh, it's a great tune. It's a great tune for drinking, too. Aye, indeed. Ezra, what do you make of uh, this one? Well, yeah, by a country male, this is the most musically boring song (laughs) we've got tonight. And considering one of the other tracks is about 20 seconds long, that's saying quite a lot. But I do find it quite hilarious. (laughs) He's singing... A 500 bottle of wine. A $500 bottle of wine. Isn't it terrible that all we get is $500 worth of wine, even though children are starving in other countries, will still complain about getting a $500 bottle of wine. And it's rendered even funnier by uh, one of the potential sources of this lyrical tantrum being that Bricks, uh, just before they broke up, was gifted a bottle of wine from a wine connoisseur friend who wanted her to start her own wine collection and said, yeah, just don't drink this for a few years. And she left it out in the apartment she was sharing with Smith with a note saying, do not drink. And can you guess what happened? <laughs> you would have thought that she could have guessed what would happen. I mean, I could, I, I've shared rooms and spaces with ardent boozers in my life. And what I can tell you is that if you have a bottle of liquor that you don't want them to drink, it's best if you put it in your pocket when you leave the house. The best bit of the anecdote, though, is that as he was looking at it, the screen froze, the credits came up and just 500 bottles. That's the end of the show, isn't it? So, yeah, you know, I mean, it's Comedy Fall, and uh, that's always appreciated. Comedy Fall is good for, yeah, you imagine, like, Bricks walks out the door and she just but she just forgets something, she comes back in. There's <laughs> <laughs> wine everywhere. <laughs> All down his shirt. The uh, the tag on the on the, on that story, now instead of Fall, was the price of that bottle today is £6,900. That's what, <laughs> that's what it says. Apparently that doesn't a, rhyme as well, though. It no, no. In the lyric. <laughs> There's apparently another source of the story where three goths that Smith had successfully insulted <laughs> in LA ex- enjoyed the experience so much they left a bottle of wine for us at the hotel saying it cost $500 and was worth every cent. Alistair, what do you make of this absolute gem? Ooh, it's off middle class revolt, not my favourite. Um, have we done this one before on this podcast? No, but I think we talked about it quite a lot when we reviewed middle class revolt. Um, we might have done, yeah. I mean, it's, it's competent, but it's not overly entertaining. Lyrically, it's all right. But no, it's, it's, it's not right. <laughs> it's, it's just dull. Come on. Try this. Try this. Try singing the chorus over and over again for about an hour. And then you'll you'll see where the love is. 
Right, okay. yeah. Um. <laughs> Middle class revolt, 15 ways, reckoning, behind the counter, M5, surmount all obstacles, war, $500 bottle of wine. $500 bottle of wine. It should it should be um it should be highly rated that album. Genuinely, this is one of my favorite <laughs> songs of that era. Um and it has been for a long time. And when I first got Middle Class Revolt, and I was very disappointed by that that um, monks cover that's on there, which is shut up, which is the worst of the, the four they do. But this one, because of that chorus, but it is it's cheese done right. Look no, cheese done wrong. This Beautiful. Two days in the desert, what did they get for all the tears and the grind? And blue on our shirt, all the lightning and strife. They're all fat gits and they get on our tits. I feel real guilty. The babies are squealing, starving and pleading all the time. A $500 bottle of wine. I love it. A meaty bass riff, twangy one note guitar most of the way through. And the chant, I've said, puts off some, but not me. $500 bottle of wine. What does Tim think? He could go either way on this. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I wouldn't like to predict, actually. Let's see. Don't like this much. I find the vocal refrain and backing vocals generally annoyingly mannered. I quite like it musically, but can't get past the box. All right, I guess. Well, he's been a bit grumpy there, isn't oh, he? Well, it is up again. Beetle Bones and uh, what's it called? What's the full title? Beetle Bones and, and Smoking Stone, yes, which is peel only Beefheart cover. <laughs> Strawberry cotton killer, strawberry butterfly, strawberry fills, the long ill sliver down the hands of the children. Indeed. Ezra, what do you make of Beetle Bones, Smoking Stones? Well, it's the cover that really had to happen, you know, like, especially on a peel session, you've got like uh, Captain Beefheart's attack on the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, which is, to be fair, a bit of a um, great diggers, what's the word, a, a, a rare find, really. It's off the uh, Strictly Personal album, which was one where there was a lot of falling out over like ludicrous application of tape effects and other things, flanging and phasing and whatnot that goes all over the place on that album. Which I actually quite like, and it's a very strong Beefheart album. I would highly recommend it. And it's, yeah, 
you know, it's the perfect song for the fall to cover because it's this dude complaining about other bands that are more successful than, than his is. And yeah, and the cover's great. It works. It shows what's good about the track. And I just love the way he goes like, strawberry cankiller and laughs. Uh, the original lyric is, of course, strawberry caterpillar. Um, yeah, I think it's a real treat, actually, this one. Indeed. it's. I keep thinking they've covered more B-Fart, but this is the only one, right? It's the only b cover they do. The one on TLC, isn't there, I guess, which is a bit of a rip-off. Yeah, yeah, the one... Dropout that, Boogie, uh, which is kind of a B-Fart cover. Which one, yeah. sorry? Dropout Boogie. Oh, yeah, yeah. That'll pop up in the um, between the cracks soon. Yeah, Alistair, what do you reckon to Beetle Bones? Surprised this one's not on the uh, in between the cracks kind of thing because it will it been just been a peel session only thing undercover. I don't think it was that good a cover tell trace, you know. Um, when it comes down to sort of like covers that you can kind of like make a comparison to, side bottom, me absolutely nailed beef art. And again, like the uh, Sergeant Pepper knew my father, where it's like you got Fall on there and side bottom on there, both doing Beatles covers, and it's like side bottom nailed it completely, you know. Um, word fall a little less convincing and I think this isn't that convincing I do like the fact that well it definitely sounds like uh, Mr Smith's had a couple of shandies like you know and that's about the best bit to it for me you know I'm going to play a B-Fats Renault because it's really creaky and wonky and beautiful and very detailed and they, the, the band here which is the 2003 band so I don't exactly who's playing but it's somewhere between it's around the heads roll era so probably sorry, Ben Pritchard there on, on guitar I, I imagine like the intro is cool and obviously when he sings strawberry fields in a ridiculous way it's very funny but yeah then it turns into a pretty pretty heavy kind of stompy kind of tune which is which is decent it's nice but i, I said i wouldn't trade the the country creak of beef art in for this robust 90s indie rocking version so let me play the original Smoking stones, the dry sand falls, the strawberry mouth, strawberry moth, strawberry caterpillar, strawberry butterfly, strawberry fields, all the way real slither on the heels of today's children, strawberry fields forever. Young roosters, no glass roosters, empty your eggs in a chilly, clean, white, red farmhouse. Tractors crawling, people are crawling, trees in the road, I'm in a coach, I approach. So yeah, I think in comparison, unfortunately, similarly to the last one, it it lacks something. It's lacking the details and the charm of the original. But each to your own. What does Timothy think? Um, how could anyone not love this? An anarchic jam full of joy and an equally great original. Perfect peel session sort of material. And it shows the sort of in-your-face feel of light user. A cover, but a beautiful one. Fair enough. Short and simple. 
How could anyone not love this, Pip? What do you as a big beef heart fan think? Uh, well, yeah, I was thinking about it the first time I heard the original. I think I, I heard the original um, when I bought the vinyl album. I was I was getting into beef heart. I, I kind of done the Trout Mash replica thing and wanted to explore more. And this is, uh, uh, like Ezra was saying, it's a great album. I think it's when Raccoon is still in the band, isn't it? And they've got this really beautiful delicate blues stuff that goes on that's that's kind of gets put through the beef out lens and the originals are classic it's very quirky and rickety and it's got that whole one-man band kind of vibe thing going on with it so the the falls take on it i love the drunken sloppiness of the intro and the fact that it is just burly holding together i think there's a lot of charm with that it made me made me giggle every time i heard it and then when it kicks in it is it's a harder blues rock edge to the tune it's it's a hard gritty beefer rhythm rather than the the rickety stuff that you hear on the original and i really like it i think they get a nice vibe going on i like the riff that they get going on the, the groove of it all is great i was whoever's playing guitar is doing a good job of it because i wouldn't like to play uh, a cover of this i think it's a very difficult song to get right without sounding cringy and awful and i think they do a very good job of it so all in all i, I really enjoyed getting in to this and I, I i really like mezzi's drunken timing on it all i think it works very well by the fact that they get like close to the three minute mark on the record it's really quite dark and tune and quite heavy the the vibe that they get going and i i enjoyed that a lot so yeah and uh, my final bullet point note that i've just read on that is uh valiant guitar so uh, kudos to whoever is playing that very noisy six string. Yeah. Um. So I was wrong earlier. Uh, 2003 is when the Peel session was released, but this is actually from 1996, which that's right in that era, right? Which after like user syndrome and in between levitate, when I guess Scanlon, this is either the end of Scanlon or this is somebody else. I don't know who it would be if it wasn't Scanlon. Is it vote time? Are we at that point? I believe Let's so. Let's have a vote. Five hundred dollar bottle of wine versus beetle bones and smoking stones. Which way are you going, Philip? I can't decide. I have to split my vote. I'm afraid. I really can't tell between these two. Ezra. Strawberry caterpillar. Interesting. The cover is well on the way, Alistair. Which one are you going to vote for? This original song off Middle Class Revolt or this? Boo, hiss, peel session cover that, like, you're right, shouldn't even really be here. Um, I'm going to split my vote. <laughs> they got two votes splitting. So which way is Tim Tim going? Above Beetle Bones. I am going the other way, $500 bottle of wine. Either of you two want to unsplit your vote, or are we going to the fingers? I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I genuinely like both of these, so I'm, I don't know. I'm torn. Alistair? Oh, go on. It's, uh, it's a cover, in it? We've got a $500 bottle of wine. No! $500 bottle of wine. All right. <laughs> I just felt sorry for Brendan. I would do all that counting again. I just feel sorry for Brendan. <laughs> pity. Oh, <laughs> sweet, sweet pity. Now let's have a listen to the best track affirmation uh, post-TLC album from 2007. Play it all, Phil. It's certainly not the worst, is it? Far, far from it. <laughs>
Ooh la la. Ezra, you introduced this. Yeah. Talks over the outro, the worst DJ crime ever. Um, Ezra, you introduced us to the musical concept of the dance um, a few weeks back. Uh, this is all the oh, dance, yeah, Dan. really. This is pure Dan. Yeah. <laughs> the damage is strong with this one. I mean, damage what, has what been done. <laughs> what can you say? It's definitely music and they can all play at the same time. And <laughs> I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it sounds great on the album. Um, yeah. Smashing. I wonder if Smith got paid for that. Is he on the credit? <laughs> Credits for the outro. Yeah. Uh, The the (laughs) joke being that it's got all of the members of the band listed, plus I think Peter Greenway's name's listed, and maybe a couple of other people. There's like seven people listed as composer of this song. Um, My notes are exactly a 25 minute long cover. Uh, My notes are best track on the album, All the Dan's slightly EQ'd. For those aficionados, the second half is it, ooh, someone's on the knob. I bet it was Smith on the knobs. Alistair, what do you make of Outro Reformation? Oh, it's all a bit busy for me. I had to concentrate a long time on that one. You know what? I did wonder about the writing credits as well, but there's not much to say about it, is there? So I'm going to shut up. Right on. What does Tim think? No doubt some Have you been? It's like you've been been cribbing each other's notes, you two, today, because he's just put best track on the album. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit of an obvious joke. To be honest, isn't it? More dam- more damning with faint praise. And uh, what do you make, Pip? Nice blips. Nice blips, indeed. Now it's up against pacifying joint of fall heads roll 2005. Eleni is here. <laughs> is here she's in a fine job she's front and center and that is a very good decision and uh smith steps up with some energy on those vocals and a decent garagey stomp all the way through bit pobby a little bit of a whiff of the pub but uh garagey enough for my liking uh, nice stuff pacifying joint with carrots and meat the second reference to, to carrots and meat this evening isn't it pacifying joint are a place where nice people should meet the picture is the widow of Windsor or any of her sons or daughters. Uh, there's a, he plays around with the notion of the word joint uh, through this. 
The lyrics at first, I thought, reminded me of the, the story of the rabbit on uh, What About Us. I wondered if he just used the same lyrics and changed a few words, but I think they're, they are different enough. Whether a joint is carpentry or a nice cut of meat or a kind of skunk damage that's being done to his <laughs> Did you say skunk damage? Pitchfork apparently were interviewing him and he said, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's been a lot of skunk damage going on around our place. He's like, did you say skunk damage? Like, <laughs> or is it a joint, the kind of joint where you kind of just hang out? Anyway, I liked it a lot. It's kind of simple, but I liked it a lot. Ezra, did you like it a lot? I did. I mean, these are two of the best words that I could ever hope to hear in one sentence together. You know, oh, come over for a pacifying joint. Don't mind if I do. And if that's beef or carpentry, great. But if you're talking about drugs, I'll call the police and have you locked up. Um, yeah, but, you know, it's interesting. Like, I've, I've always had super fond memories of this track. I've known about it for a while. But um, the more I was listening to it this week, the more it was reminded reminding me of Shipman, What About Us? I think there's, and I haven't listened to Shipman to check, but if I'm not mistaken, it's also musically quite similar, is it not? It's very similar uh, in both sound and in words. That's why I was thinking. They just yeah. make one into two here, but it works. But yeah, you know, I mean, it's a great title and the lyrics don't go much further beyond the ones that you kind of recited there. And that's enough for me. Um, but listening to it, I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, probably I'd like this just as much if it was Marky e. Smith in a cardboard box saying the words without the band, you know, like. So, you know, I'm I'm, I'm sorry. I feel like there's some kind of bitter, ugly spirit has seeped into my consciousness against this song. And I still like it. Well, that's good. Good. I'm glad. Even through all the bitterness and the tears, we can still give it a thumbs up. And it's not got much to do in this competition to go through, to be honest. Alistair, what do you reckon? Yeah, it's, it's dead minimal, but I suppose it's got its charm. It's, they do a lot of samey sounding stuff, though, especially around this kind of era. But I suppose it's like it's each era has its own sound, doesn't it? And it's like they were a little bit more generic, I think, around about this time. So, yeah, I can completely relate to what uh, Ezra's saying about what about us. But it reminds me a bit of uh, like Mighty Boosh when they were pissing around with music, the uh, future Sahelis. So I think that's Eleni's uh, contribution there. All in all, it's just a bit meh. It's there. It's all right. Fair enough. What does Philip think? Well, I, I kind of started off with the, the position that you lot are describing, really, which is that I, I thought it was functional and, you know, it's okay and it's a bit whiffy of pub rock and all those kind of things. But after three or four listens, it really won me over this. I think Messi's on great form in this song and I think he's he does a great job of carving some some nice hooks out of nothing, really. The backing vocal stuff, it's great when that kicks in. And I think these uh, the pro tools editing is is working wonders with his with his voice it is a bit with your pub rock but i think it just skirts the line for me i think the nice rhythm that they get going whilst the production's <laughs> and i think i would uh, lean towards alistair's aesthetic on the uh, on the whole studio production i think it, it would it would benefit from a touch of the rouge i think in the production but um i think overall it sounds pretty good it's tight nice performance lots of energy and uh, like i said after three or four listens i was quite looking forward to this one coming on, I think it's uh, it's a good, nice little garage stomper. 
Yeah. You were saying a while back that they sounds like they deliberately this year wrote some stuff for the festival circuit. When you Google the fall, this is the stuff that comes up. That that gig where somewhere in Europe that is this era and it's pacifying joints and what about us and mountain energy? Those are they're huge for that that reason. Yeah, the, this the TLC lineup more so than the um, the lads later uh, skirted that line a little better. I think. Did Tim tell us what he thinks? Yeah. No, but I can tell you straight away. He's very excited. Good, he good. starts off with whoop whoop whoop. <laughs> That's the fucking joint. You all know I'm partial to this era for the most part, and this is a good example of their take on the garage stomp that did so well live. It's simple and fairly straightforward, but good headphone and walking music. I like the synth sounds and the way it colours things. Good stuff. Good stuff indeed. So I think it's a done deal, but let's uh, let's put that cherry on that cake. Which way are you going, Phil? Outro? Outro. Or <laughs> okay. <laughs> Alistair, which way are you going? I'll go outro. <laughs> oh, you might. Ezra, which way are you going? The dance have it. Outro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also going for outro. Which way is Tim going? <laughs> I'm going to lie. Outro. Outro goes right. through. Outro goes through. I was going to go for pacifying joint until you all voted for outro. We, oh. we all really wanted to go for pacifying joint, but it was too funny to let go. <laughs> All right, we'll see what we can do. I'll write some letters. Um, <laughs> so that so that uh, that concludes proceedings. That's it. Uh, that's that, the end, mate. That's You've done end. it. Well done. We, we've done it. We've made it through. So that is for. I think um, basically we just cut back early on on Wyndham Lewis again because I want to just talk about his, his politics if we could. <laughs> That means Fortress slash Deer Park goes through, as does Gross Chapel, as does Fabric or Bottle of Wine, as does Outro Reformation. Um, <laughs> what, a, what a shitty second round is it shaping up to be. It, on that, we have 12 more episodes left, and you are not going to be happy about the songs that come up against each other in round one for the next <laughs> weeks. <laughs> but we, we'll see. We'll see what we can do to make uh, make that go really down a little easier. got to do it now. Yeah. I, all right. Bye. Oh, get some good night sleeping before next week. It's a mez, mez one. Bye. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs>